Well, welcome to Graceway Baptist Church and our Sunday school hour for uh, kind of an ominous date here, isn't it? September 11th, 2022. You remember where you were on September 11th of 2001? Or was it 2002? Um, I remember, and uh, that date will always kind of be, for those of us who were living then and aware of what was going on, it'll always be in our mind. And it's a little ironic that we are where we are in the book of Daniel. We're in Daniel 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 9. And you remember in this, Belshazzar, the uh, king, he's a new king as far as we're concerned. Um, Nebuchadnezzar has been dead about 20 years, you remember. And uh, Belshazzar now, while his city, Babylon, is under siege by the Medes and the Persians, Darius, uh, some think that Darius in the Bible, uh, the king mentioned there is Cyrus the Great. But um, anyway, he is having Babylon under siege. Nothing comes in, nothing goes out. But the Babylonians, you know, don't worry about that because the walls are impenetrable. Famous last words. And uh, we'll never fall. And we've got enough food inside to last for 20 years and the river Euphrates flows under our walls and through the midst of our city, so we'll always have water. So eat, drink, and be merry. Throw a party. Don't worry about any of that. They'll get tired and they'll go away after a while. Well, while they're doing that, what we're going to find today is a supernatural event takes place, and the finger of God writes some things on the plaster of the wall. Now, before we actually get into that and talk about it, I want us to approach this text from a little different standpoint, because I think what we see in here in Belshazzar and how he reacts to all of this and uh, what happens tells us a lot about people who are lost without the Lord. A saved person and a lost person can look at exactly the same thing and come to two different conclusions. And only one is right. And that's kind of what we're going to see happen here. So uh, I've entitled the lesson today, Why Pray for the Unsaved? I mean, I get a little bit tired of people who say, well, if God's going to save whom he will, then why should I bother praying for them? Uh, people also say, if God saves his elect, why should I witness? You know, the old saying, ours is not to question why, ours is but to do and die. Uh, do or die. Uh, that's kind of where we are on this. The bottom line is you may never understand why God has told you to do something, but you better well get it in your mind that he has told you to do it. And we are told to pray for the lost, and Paul sets an example for that. And if there was ever a, I mean, it didn't exist at the time, but if there was ever a Calvinist to walk the earth, it was the Apostle Paul. And yet he, we find that he was burdened for the lost. And he actually commanded us with apostolic authority under the inspiration of the Spirit to pray for the lost. What's wrong with us? That we think that we've got a better way or if we don't understand it, we don't have to do it. And there's a lot of things we do in life that we don't fully understand. Someone 
put it like this. They said, I don't fully understand electricity, but I'm not going to sit in the dark until I do. And uh, we've got to get serious about this. And so praying for the lost and being burdened for the lost and concerned for them, for the unsaved, is an important thing. And we're going to look at Belshazzar's reaction to this incident, and we're going to see why we should pray for them. Now, to make sure we're clear on what the Bible commands, understand this. Paul was a proponent of praying for the lost. I mean, after all, if a lost person can't save themselves, and if, uh, according to Romans 3, they don't seek after God or understand, then what's their only hope? Their only hope is for a believer like you to go to the God who can save them, who can open their eyes, who can draw them to faith in Christ. That's the only hope that they've got. Paul was a proponent of this. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. First of all, then, and when he says first of all, he's not necessarily saying this needs to be number one on your list or number one in your worship service. He's using it as a term that says this is priority. Pay attention to this. This is a big deal. This is something that ought to be first and foremost on your mind and your heart. So first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. How well are we doing on that? We ought to be praying through the phone book, shouldn't we? And then it says, specifically, for kings and all who are in high positions. The King James Version says, all who are in authority. Do we do that? We resent people in authority. We complain about people in authority. And yet the Bible says here we're supposed to pray. And notice it lists different kinds of prayer, supplications. You might want to look that up. Prayers. That's... Um, a word for worship, actually, in there. Intercessions. But notice this other one. Thanksgivings. Be made for all people. Well, I'm not thanking God for, and you could put somebody's name in there, a president, a vice president, a congressman, a senator, a governor. I'm not going to give thanks for them. What do I have to give thanks for them for, right? Well, here again, you're commanded to. You take that up with God. You're commanded to do that. God's the one who put them in place after all. Thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions and authority. Now let's hit the pause button. Who is Paul talking about there and telling Timothy, this ought to be a priority for you to pray for these people? How about uh, a Caesar? Maybe by this time it was Nero. One of the worst enemies Christianity and the gospel would ever have. And yet Paul says you're supposed to pray for him and you're supposed to give thanks for him. Well, if you knew what he did to my wife or my husband or my children or my pastor or somebody in my church, I mean, he's the one that would take Christians and he would put them up on poles and then he would uh, put wax and other materials on them to make them burn and light them on fire and watch them burn and use them to illuminate his garden. Just a cruel, 
twisted, perverted man. And uh, yet Paul says we're supposed to pray for him and we're supposed to give thanks for him. Well, not on your life. Well, if you are saying that and if you have that attitude, then you're not a Bible believer and you don't believe in the infallibility and the inspiration of Scripture. There again, you're going to have to take that up with God. This is what God is commanding us through the Apostle Paul. And he's commanding it to be done on behalf of some of the most horrific, wicked people that have ever walked on the face of the earth. Let that sink in. Not just somebody of a different political party or a different persuasion philosophically than you have. I mean, truly wicked, evil, persecuting, Christian-killing people. He says you're supposed to pray for them and give thanks for them. Okay? Now, he tells us, picking up the text again, the purpose. Okay? Whenever you see the word that, it's giving us a purpose clause. Why should I do this, Paul? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Well, that's why. That's why. And uh, this is good, he says. This is good, and we're supposed to be doing good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Well, there's reason enough. It pleases God. And then he tells us what God is thinking, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And by all people there, I would take that to mean all kinds and types of people from every race, from every continent, and also from every class of people, whether they be kings or whether they be dirt poor, whether they be slaves. He desires all kinds of people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. It's not a statement about universalism. It's a statement about the, inclus- uh, the inclusivity of all kinds of people in the kingdom of God and in the gospel of Christ. Now, that's a direct command for all of us, right? Now, I want you to notice Paul personally in Romans 10.1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, he's talking about ethnic Israel, is that they may be saved. Okay? So Paul made it a practice to pray for people to be saved. He didn't just say, ah, God will do it if he wants to do it. William Carey, the Englishman, the shoe cobbler that launched the modern missions movement, he went to his Baptist Baptist Association and he told them of his burden for the people of India. And one man, I believe his name was a Dr. Rawlings, stood up, interrupted him and said, young man, this is a paraphrase, sit down, I perceive that you're an enthusiast. When God gets ready to save the heathen, he'll do it without your help or mine. Now, Was he right about that? Yeah. I'm really glad that God doesn't leave eternal destiny of people and nations and races of people. I'm glad he doesn't leave that in my hands because I don't do too good of a job at that. And you probably don't either. I'm glad that as a sovereign God, he makes sure everything is taken care of. He even changes hearts and calls people to do what they would never think about doing, doing the unthinkable, leaving England a comfortable life and going to India 
where he spends seven years without a convert and his wife goes insane during that time. Can you imagine? And yet William Carey started something that continues to this day in India and also has affected the work of Christ and missionary work all around the world. Now, when we see this, we see that Paul had this kind of missionary desire. And he wasn't just going to set back like the good Dr. Rawlings wanted them to do, saying, we'll just leave this in the hands of God. Well, it is true. God is going to do that, and he will do that. But should we be so hard-hearted and so disjointed from the plan of God that we would set back, fold our hands, and say, well, if you don't give me a good reason, I'm not going to do it, and uh, I'll leave it to somebody else, or God will take care of it. What an act of disobedience. And that was the farthest thing from Paul's mind. Paul's mind was, if you understand doctrine and the sovereignty of God, why would you not want to be involved in it? Pray and glorify God, asking him to save lost people. Now that's what we're supposed to do. There's a why behind all of this as well. We know what to do. Now why should I do it? Well, we see this illustrated here in the book of Daniel. We pray for God's intervention. Daniel chapter 5, verses 5 through 9 illustrates the why. Let's read it. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote, Then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him. That's a nice way of saying he was terrified, okay? Terrified. How bad? So that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. In other words, he was about to pass out. He he was without help. He couldn't stand up. His knees, his Uh, legs turned to jelly, we might say. Uh, The king cried aloud, very undignified thing for a king to do, but he cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. Where have we seen this before? Ah, Nebuchadnezzar, whenever he would have those dreams and he wanted to know what they meant and he required them to even say what they were. Same group of people the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Why the third ruler? You remember from last week? Nebuchadnezzar was grandfather, Nabonidus was the father, and Belshazzar was the son. Nabonidus is off fighting wars, having adventures, making treaties, all of that kind of stuff. And so he's gone. He's not even in Babylon. And so before he left, he put his son, Belshazzar, in charge of the kingdom. So um, Nabonidus is the real king. 
Belshazzar is reigning as the acting king in this situation, and whoever reads this writing will be number three in the kingdom. That's why that number is there. Verse 8. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. They had never seen him like this before. This is not typical for Belshazzar. This is not something that they, you know, I don't worry, he'll get over it. It's been, no, they've never seen this king this particular way before. He's terrified. I um, remember a situation that happened in our family, and um, the statement was made by something, because of something that I did by one of my kids, they said, uh-oh, if dad's reacting to this, it's really serious because I typically don't do just a whole lot of reaction and hopefully not overreaction. I think that's what they were saying here. Uh, Belshazzar's people were going, wait a minute, if he's this upset, it must really be serious. It must really be bad. And so... Uh, we know the story is going to go on with Daniel's going to come in once again and take care of it. But let's not go there yet. Let's look at Belshazzar's reaction to the handwriting on the wall. You know, most people don't realize that, uh, you know, when they say, until I see the handwriting on the wall, I'm not going to do anything. Uh, that comes from the Bible. Most people don't realize that. And secondly, when you read the story, the handwriting on the wall, it didn't make anything clear. In fact, for Belshazzar and all of the people there, they're like, what in the world is this? Why do, what did I just see? And what does this actually mean? This was something that um, brought glory to God, called attention to God, and uh, was something that only the man of God could actually interpret. But I digress. Why do we pray for lost people? Think about these things. Number one, they can see certain evidences of God. This is obviously a supernatural event. Belshazzar sees the hand, and um, in the same hour, it says, the fingers of a man's hand appeared, and he wrote opposite the lampstand, on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Okay? He saw it. Now, he didn't understand it. He didn't get it. This was not causing him to fall on his knees and cry out to the true and the living God. Uh, nothing could be farther from the truth in this. Now, this is in the midst of a drunken party where they had taken the articles of gold and silver out of the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, excuse me, and they got them out and they're drinking wine in these vessels dedicated to the Lord, except they are, if you'll remember, they're praising idols made of gold and silver, wood, stone, that type of thing, okay? So while they're doing this, then this hand and this finger comes and writes on the wall. In the midst of their blasphemy, in the midst of what may have been even an orgy, who knows? What happens? God shows up and he does something and nobody gets it. Nobody understands it. 
Is that not a good illustration of the way people are? You can have two people sitting in church hearing the same message. One breaks down, trusts the Lord. The other walks out and says, I didn't get anything out of that at all. What's the deal? Warren Wearsby says, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. And that's the way the truth of the Word of God seems to react on people's hearts. Some, their heart melts, and some it gets harder. Same message, same message that does it, but a totally different reaction. And when we think about Romans chapter 3, no one seeks after God, but it also tells us there's no one who understands. This is not a matter of just if they only knew and if they only had the facts. They don't care about the facts. The facts are not what moves them. And this is why some people learn Bible apologetics. If I can prove the resurrection, these people will get saved. No, not until the Holy Spirit moves upon their heart. It may make you feel better and it may bolster what you have to say. It may shut them up. It may cause them maybe to doubt or question some things they believe, but it's only the Holy Spirit that can bring them to that point of being saved. Now, there are things that theologians talk about, general revelation and then special or specific revelation. Well, what's the difference in all of that? Well, general revelation is the things you can see in nature and in life. People can see God. They can see the handiworks of God. And it's just a general thing. Anybody who looks around at the world and anybody who looks at the stars at night, who looks through a telescope as he's a planet, anybody who can see the human body and the design and the way that it works and the way that it functions, the way that it heals, anybody that sees the ecosystem in nature, how... Um, the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom, they all fit together. They feed off of each other and the design that's their gravity and all of that type of stuff, the atmosphere. Anybody who looks at that ought to conclude, well, there is a God because there's got to be a designer. That's general revelation. Somebody defined it as God's communication of himself to all persons, lost and saved, at all times and in all places. Where's the Bible for that? Romans 1.20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. General revelation. See the stars. I hear the thunder, like the song says, right? Um, all of that gives evidence of the power and existence of God. Now, special revelation, on the other hand, involves God's particular communications and manifestations of himself to particular persons at particular times. Communications and manifestations that are available now only by consultation of certain sacred writings. That's just a way of saying the Bible. Second Peter chapter 1, 19 through 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention 
as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises. Where? In your hearts. That's when the Spirit of God illuminates you and all of a sudden the gospel makes sense. All of a sudden salvation makes sense. All of a sudden your sinfulness makes sense. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation or origin. For no prophecy has ever, was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried about or moved by the Holy Spirit. So general revelation is enough to condemn you. You know there's a God. And you're going to be without excuse because of everything you have seen. However, only special revelation by the Holy Spirit through the scripture, the gospel, can actually save. So here's how we sum up point one. Belshazzar saw the hand of God, that's general revelation, the evidence of God, but he did not hear, receive, or believe the word of God that brings salvation. Special revelation was gone. He didn't get it. He didn't understand it. And when he does, it's going to be too late. Everybody, let's put it this way, is going to receive special revelation someday. You say, even the lost? Yeah, well, then why aren't they saved? Because they're going to get it at the great white throne judgment. And they're going to bow their knee and confess that Jesus is Lord before they're cast into the lake of fire. Very sad. Very troubling. Very sad. So that's number one. They can see only certain evidences. They're blinded to the truth of God. Number two, they may have an unhealthy fear. Now we want everyone to fear God, but this is an unhealthy fear. Then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. Okay. Now this is not repentance, and it's not faith. This is not Belshazzar coming to understand who God is and surrender to him. It's not that. He's seen something. He doesn't know what it is. He probably doesn't want to know what it is. And uh, it terrifies him. It terrifies him. And there are a lot of people in the world that they have a, uh, let's put it this way, a superstitious, weird fear of God. It's not that they love him. It's not that they've trusted him. It's not that they have surrendered to him, but they're just, they're just afraid of something. And it's, uh, they don't know exactly who it is. And any prayer that they might pray might be a, to whom it may concern, you know, that type of thing. A lot of people are like that. So this is not salvation. This is superstitious fear. In James chapter 2, verse 19, you're familiar with this. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Well, that doesn't mean they get saved. That just means they are terrified about God. How many times did demons, when they were confronted with Christ, say, uh, you know, do not hurt us now. Has the day come? Remember all of that? What have we to do with you? Terrified. Doesn't mean they're saved. Demons are certainly not atheists. Don't ever get that idea. They know who God is. So Belshazzar, no idea who it was, what was happening, where it came from, or what it meant. Number three, we should pray for lost people because they seek understanding in the wrong places. Okay? Okay. 
Remember that old song, looking for love in all the wrong places? Well, that's what lost people do. Except in this case, they're not looking for love. They're looking for understanding. How do I make sense of the world around me? So I look to Darwin. Not going to find it there. I may look to maybe another religion. Not going to find it there. It's found in Genesis chapter 1. Well, it says, The king cried aloud to bring in whom? Astrologers, Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. Looking for truth. There's our song. They're looking for truth in all the wrong places, aren't they? And so Belshazzar is doing that. How many friends, family members, how many neighbors do you have that they are looking for truth, but they're looking in all the wrong places, looking to all the wrong people? Now, you've tried to talk to them and you've shared them what the scripture says. And then lo and behold, if they don't start believing a Jehovah's Witness, lo and behold, if they don't start falling for Buddhism or Hinduism or something like that. Have you seen that happen? It's just crazy, isn't it? Because apart from the work of the Spirit of God, they'll look everywhere except the right place. And that's what Belshazzar is doing. Have you ever had somebody that thought, well... Uh, maybe I'm not really a full-fledged follower of Christ and don't really believe the Bible and redemption, but you know what? I think the church is a good thing. I'll give money to the church. I'll donate something to the church. I'll let the church name something after me. You know, that type of thing. And they think that that's going to cover their bases just in case the church is right. See, that's not repentance. That's not faith and belief in the gospel. And so Belshazzar says, whoever reads this writing and tells it to me, tells me its interpretation, shall be clothed with purple, right? Have a chain of gold around their neck and the third ruler of the kingdom. So think about this. The first place he goes is to demonic, false, occult resources. You know, Isaiah says something about this. In Isaiah 47, 13, you are wearied with your many counsels. Now let them stand forth and save you, those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, and who, uh, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. You know what he's talking about? Astrologers. So if you think that there's something to that, then back off from me, God says, and let that save you. Well, see, for most people who go for that, there are some people, Nancy Reagan type people, who sort of sell out to all of that. But most people, it's just kind of an interest. And they say, quote unquote, well, there's got to be something to it, you know. And they still say they believe in God because, well, it's kind of the same thing. Uh, there's got to be something to church, got to be something to the Bible and so they want to cover all their bases. That's what Belshazzar is doing. Even when he later calls Daniel in, it's not to trust God, but it's because he wants to cover all the bases. Somebody's got to find, uh, got to have some truth somewhere, somehow. And so he thinks that his money and his rewards and these people can give him understanding and protection from the unknown force. After all, his name means Bel, a false god, protect the king. So he's banking on that, isn't he? 
Number four, we need to pray for lost people because without Christ, everything ends in futility. Now all, verse eight, all the king's wise men came. Huh, they showed up, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. You know why? Because he's thinking, oh man, if these wise men don't have the answers, what am I going to do? If you don't know, where does that leave me? So his countenance was changed and his lords were astonished. They had never seen him like this ever before. Now, once again, the pagans failed. That's been the theme all through Daniel. At the beginning, at the very front of the book, the pagans seem to win. They invade Jerusalem, they conquer it, they take the stuff out of the temple, and they don't even die for stepping into the Holy of Holies, and they take out the brightest and best. But God says, I've got other plans. And then through all of this, we find on occasion after occasion after occasion, the pagans fail and God prevails. Well, once again, the pagans failed. They held the treasures of the Jerusalem temple in their hand. Holding it in their hand while all of this is happening. Okay? Now they see the hand of God writing on the wall. And it's a hand that Nebuchadnezzar spoke of in Daniel 4.35. And none can stay his, what? Hand. Or say to him, what have you done? So now they're seeing the hand. The hand of God. Sometimes we talk about the hand of God being the unseen hand. Well, not in this case. It was seen. And he wrote something on there, but nobody could understand it because it was beyond them. It had to be spiritually discerned. And the hand of God was going to overrule all of them. In their hands, they held the vessels from the temple of God, and in that was wine on which they were getting drunk, and they were also praying to and praising their gods that were lifeless. Remember what the psalmist said? Eyes they have, but they cannot see. Ears they have, but they cannot hear. Mouths they have, but they cannot speak. In other words, they are lifeless, breathless, worthless gods. And so God takes his hand. He goes, you want to see a hand? It's not your hand that holds the vessel. It's my hand that moves the universe and moves the nations. And so he wrote on the wall, the handwriting on the wall. And we'll talk about that again in the next lesson. Belshazzar, which means Bel protect the king, was going to find out that God reigns, but too late. Bel did not protect him, and his reward meant nothing because he would die that very night and his kingdom would be conquered. And so Daniel, when he comes in, he's not interested in the promotion. Keep it. You know why? Because he knew that the kingdom that gave him that promotion, the government that would recognize that, was over. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. You know, that's really true for all of us, isn't it? But it was especially true that night for Belshazzar. No idea. No idea that the 
Medes and the Persians, were going to divert the river from the Euphrates River that flowed under the walls and into the city. And when it dried up, there would be a gap where the water used to be. And that the army was not going to have to knock down the walls or scale the walls or do a long siege and starve them out. They were just going to divert the water and then walk into the city unopposed and conquer it. And Belshazzar, this night, when he is partying, is going to be his last. What a good warning and reminder for us. But for us and our purposes, assuming that we all are saved people, it tells us why we need to pray for lost people. Take it to heart. Do more than that. Put it into practice. Because Christ is our only hope, and he certainly is their only hope. And they can't talk to him. We can. Let's do it out of a heart of love and a desire to see God glorified in lost people's lives. Well, thank you for your time and thank you for taking this to heart and may the Lord bless you. Thank you teachers for teaching and thank you for those of you who watch this in order to keep up. May the Lord bless you and we will see you next week, Lord willing.